Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale, seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Hey, Airlines Confidential fans. Thanks for the download. Good to have you here with us. And I hope you had a either a happy Easter or a good Passover if you celebrate one of those holidays. I'm Chris Chimes. And as always, I've got Ben Baldanza here. Hey, Chris. Great to have our loyal listeners join us. And hopefully we have some new listeners, too. We're going to have what I think will be a very interesting discussion with aviation writer Catherine Creedy in just a few minutes, covering off some important pilot workforce issues. But first, Chris, let's take a few news items. All right, Ben, let's get first to what is a growing buzz with business and consumer media here in the U.S. and probably abroad as well, airfares. The, the confluence of strong demand, inflation, and a spike in oil prices has airfares on a steep ascent. I've seen conflicting reports of airfares up in March anywhere from 11% to 20%. Either way, it's double digit. But we all know airports and airplanes are very full right now. Ben, what are the three things you're going to be watching over the next month? Well, Chris, we're paying more for everything we buy whether it's gasoline in our cars or milk at the grocery store. So it's not a complete surprise that airfares are up because airlines buy a lot of things. They're paying more for those. Yet one of the economics of this industry, which we've probably said multiple times on this show, is that airlines, while they have very high average costs, because airplanes are expensive, people are expensive, fuel's expensive, airports are expensive things. They have very low marginal costs, meaning if the flight's about to go out and there's an empty seat, it costs the airline very little to actually put someone in that seat in terms of incremental expense. And that has tended to keep airfares low even when inflation is high. I think what's happening now is demand came back even stronger than people thought it might, even though it's much on the leisure side. Some more business travel is coming back. That's pushing up average fare. So you asked me what the three things I'm going to be watching over the next month. I'm going to be looking at one, does capacity that the industry offers actually start to significantly exceed what was offered at the same time in 2019? The airlines have the planes to do that. They can put in the schedules with enough aircraft utilization to do that, but they haven't done that yet. Number two, how do airlines report on business travel? The last time there were reports at, and through the earnings calls that are just starting now, we've had Delta, but the rest to go. How do the CEOs and heads of marketing talk about the return of business travel? If they talk bullishly about that, that will say good things for the industry in terms of its ability to have what might end up being a pretty good year. And three, just 
how well are airlines able to operate these bigger schedules given all of the labor difficulties? Not only pilots, like we're going to talk to Catherine Creedy about, but all labor. Airlines use a lot of people. And so wage pressure is there in all businesses for airlines to have enough people to run peak kind of operations. We've seen cancellations of flights because of staffing. So those three things, level of capacity, return of business travel, and operational integrity, especially given uh, labor shortage concerns, those are the three big things I think over the next month that are going to say a lot about what the rest of this year is going to look like for the industry. Yeah, we still have pockets of the U.S. industry kind of pulling back a bit on their growth. I think both Alaska and JetBlue have said they're going to trim their schedules a bit more uh, early summer. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of hiring going on, but whether everyone's gotten through the pipeline or not, I think that's to be determined. And then, of course, when you have a lot of new people, what's their efficiency and their ability to handle the volume versus a veteran gate agent or baggage handler or whatever it might be. Um, there's just a lot of rookies that are going to be on the front line and things are going to probably still move a little slow. Yeah. And airlines that have strong cultures, whether that's, you know, customer service at a JetBlue, cost focus at a Spirit, business focus at a Delta United, you know, whatever that is, when you're bringing in so many new people that are a large percentage of your total staff, how do you even, you know, onboard people and get them to even understand how the company wants them to think about their business? It's a real challenge, I think. I noticed you didn't say anything about watching the startups uh, during this period. Do you have any special concerns about how they're going to handle the turbulence? Well, you know, since they're so small right now, that doesn't mean that they won't be very big in a few years, but they're small right now. And so whether they grow a lot or grow slowly isn't going to really move the industry's needle around capacity or such. Avello, for example, has six airplanes. The difference between them having six airplanes and 12 airplanes, which would be doubling their size for them, would do very little for sort of the industry level of capacity or their ability to really drive pricing down and things like that. And Breeze is, you know, still just starting to get its A220s. Doesn't That's sort of the flagship of that airline. It just doesn't have very many of them yet. It's mostly running the Embraer regional jets. So I just think it this summer is too early for them to make waves. Now, maybe a year from now, we'll be talking a lot about those startups. And then, Ben, you kind of touched upon this in your previous remarks, but this week starts the quarterly earnings reports for U.S. carriers, at least, with Delta leading off in the U.S., we're going to press ahead of investor calls and news releases and having that specific data. So I'm not going to ask you to predict financial results, but what are the themes you expect to hear over the next few weeks from CEOs? 
That's a good question, Chris, and it is a little duplicative with what I said about what I'm going to be watching. I certainly think the themes are going to be, what are you seeing on the return of business travel? And what's happening to your labor? And do you have enough people to run what might be a busy summer? I think we're going to hear those kinds of questions on every call and probably those issues directly addressed in the prepared scripts of the CEOs and CFOs who talk. But beyond that, I think we're also going to hear lots of commentary either in the prepared scripts or in the questioning around cost control. We're in an environment of lots of inflation. And so not only labor, but if labor is going to cost the industry more, what are the airlines doing to mitigate that through other cost controls or other sort of structural cost improvements they can make. I think you're going to start to hear again about sustainability as early as this quarter. The industry sort of revalidated its 2050 commitment. Now 2050 is still a long way off, but the in, but the industry has put that out saying that they care about that. And so I think that's going to be a theme we're going to hear about. And the last thing I think we're going to hear about is just sort of the general competitive state with the proposed mergers on the table and with things like that. I don't doubt if airlines will be getting questions about how will you compete if these airlines get together or if you're one of these airlines, how do you plan to compete if you win or lose or things like that? So I think those are all the kind of themes that we're going to hear about. I think it's going to be a very interesting quarter. You asked me not to predict financial results, so I won't do it by carrier, but I'd be surprised if any of the big names in the U.S. make money because there just hasn't been enough rate yet to cover the cost of capital in the business. But some airlines may, and some of the smaller airlines may, but I don't think that the industry is going to be talking about a return to profitability yet, even though they may be talking about a very bullish return of travelers. Well, Airlines Confidential wants to thank Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company and specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. And a reminder that TA Connections procures over 30 million hotel room nights annually for the airline and cruise industry and makes travel management easier and less expensive with AI-powered booking applications, algorithms, and analytics, along with a great negotiated rate program. Learn more at TAConnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Finally, Ben, as Europeans get ready for their summer beach holidays in Spain, Saint-Tropez, and the Greek islands, the European ULCC carriers are getting ready to strut the beach, or more like the runway, and they're starting to flex and predict a great summer. But there are growing reports of chaos at European airports with staffing shortages like what we've seen in the U.S., 
And then, of course, we have the overhang of Russia's war in Ukraine impacting fuel prices and travel patterns. What are you watching here? Well, it's fascinating. You know, Europeans travel a lot. The size of sort of the continental Europe traveling market is roughly the size of the U.S. market in terms of the number of airplanes deployed and the number of people who were traveling at least before the pandemic. Also, I think it's important to note that Europeans have different laws than we have in the U.S. The U.S. airlines are guided by the Railway Labor Act. We've talked about that on this show a couple of times. And it's very difficult for labor in the U.S. to make real operational challenges through work efforts since there's a process under the Railway Labor Act that is intended to sort of keep the airlines moving. It can certainly get to that and has gotten to that in the U.S. at times. But in Europe, it's not uncommon for you to show up at the airport and just learn that, you know, in the next hour, Air France is going to be on strike and all flights are canceled for the next 24 hours. So with that kind of environment and a difficult summer of labor strife, lots of social issues that are always seem to be a little more energy behind those in Europe than in the U.S., I think Europe could have a very challenging summer operationally. And the question is going to be whether or not there are a lot of visitors from Asia and the U.S., who normally might pack a lot of the planes into that region and be filling the streets of Paris, London, Berlin, and other places. And whether that's as strong or whether it's all the local markets that are now going to sort of get back into flying again, but create that demand. It's an interesting thing you bring up here. And as similar as airlines are around the world, the environments in which these airlines work are different, and the European market is different enough that the U.S. could have a very boisterous summer as long as they can get enough people to work while there could be some chaos over in Europe. Yeah, and a lot of U.S. tourism interests are trying to get uh, European workers, get their visas processed to get them over here to work at the resorts and in Colorado or Alaska or wherever else. So again, where the workers are coming from, I think it's going to matter. And, you know, I think, you you know, you often forget, I mean, we've got a trip to Europe planned this summer. It's going to involve air travel into a small market. And so, you know, flying into a, a major city on a major carrier is one thing, but then to take a connecting flight into a very small market where you might get stuck, that's, that's got all of us kind of carefully watching the situation to see what's going on. That's right. Chris, are you and your family planning to travel to Europe this summer? We're going to try to get to Greece and uh, actually get to a couple of islands. So again, that's that island hopping part of that is, uh, you know, where you got the one or two flights a day kind of situation. So it's not, again, like going to a major city where you have that level of support of a major airport. Well, that's great. I'm sure when you come back, you can tell all our listeners about how it really worked. (laughs) Well, don't go away. We'll be right back with our discussion with Catherine Creedy in a moment. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net 
the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The Archive.net is now boarding. We're very happy to be joined by Catherine Creedy, Editor-in-Chief at Future Aviation and Aerospace Workforce News, to this week's Airlines Confidential Expert Chat. Catherine, good to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. So many of our listeners may know your background, but for those who are new to aviation, would you give a little self-introduction about your background in, in the airline business and what you're doing now? Sure. I've been covering aviation for 30 years. I started out specializing in regional airlines as founding editor of Commuter Regional Airline News. And uh, since 1990, I've been freelancing with a few you know, detours into public affairs with the FAA. And then after that was over, I went back to freelancing and I've established several more newsletters and I've written for CNN, BBC, air and space. Today, I follow workforce shortages and how training and culture must change to accommodate the current workforce and millennials and the diverse population we need to fill out aviation's ranks. That's fantastic, Catherine. Well, you've done some interesting reporting and analysis on many aspects of airline labor, especially the pilot workforce. So let's get right to that important workforce. How would you characterize the current state of the pilot workforce in the U.S.? Desperate, (laughs) in one word. The pilot shortage predated the pandemic by nearly a decade, thanks to federal changes in requirements. As for the pandemic, I believe airlines panicked, despite the massive bailouts, and cut everything to bare bones. I understand why they did it, but they should have been quicker to restart training. They knew as early as Thanksgiving 2020 there was pent-up demand, and throughout 2021, it just kept growing. We lost 9,000 of the 12,000 pilots due to retire between 2020 and 2025 in a single year. Plus, we lost more who just left the industry. And who can blame them when you realize pilots face four furlough-inducing economic events during their career? But airlines use PSPs to fund buyouts, but overdid it, I think. And while U.S. jobs have come back, I understand from contacts around the world, there are still many who remain furloughed. And I would love to know why we can't use those pilots as other industries use special visas to recruit from abroad. We need to develop the infrastructure to enable that. Because if we don't do something remarkable, the chaos we face today will go on for years because it takes too long, five years, to train and onboard a new pilot. I've been advocating for pilot training reform since 2015, and I think the Europeans are way ahead of us. So, Catherine, you alluded to it, but as it relates to pilot shortages in the U.S., they've been looming for years, as you said. Mm -hmm. So many people point to the Colgan Air crash and the subsequent changes in pilot training requirements as the kind of the root cause or the main cause. But that accident was in 2009. Shouldn't the industry have adapted to that and solved for that by now? Yes, of course we should have, but we have not addressed it because pilot unions have consistently denied we have a pilot shortage. This despite the fact mainline pilot managers have been saying since at least 2016 that sourcing pilots is what keeps them up at night. We've had a shortage for nearly a decade, but with the singular exception of JetBlue, it was only a few years ago mainlines began building their training infrastructure by founding cadet academies, 
partnering with vetted flight schools and working with flight schools to teach the airline way. Unions denied the shortage, calling it a pay shortage. And despite double-digit increases in pilot pay at regionals, they still say this. The regional invests $100,000 in bringing a pilot on board with bonuses and training. I think the new 1,500-hour rule was detrimental to safety, according to the Flight Safety Foundation in studies, and to their credit, regionals stepped up by increasing the training footprint from 10 to 15 sessions because they saw the discipline and professionalism pilots learned uh, in flight schools seriously eroding as they drilled holes in the sky. But no one is advocating for eliminating, uh, eliminating that rule, which is, I think is a shame. I think we need to stop listening to the unions and the airlines. We need to start listening to the safety experts. I think we need to reform all pilot training. It interests me that in 2017, five years ago, the Air Force reformed training and then Secretary Heather Wilson saying it produced better pilots with shortened training. We need to study this. You know, what you're saying is fascinating, Catherine. I like your idea of special visas for furloughed foreign pilots, even if it's a temporary stopgap. I agree with you that the 1,500-hour rule needs to be revised. And David Grizzle, who's been on the podcast before, believes that it's unlikely that that rule is going to change, but that the FAA may be open to exceptions for a number of things, almost the way drone activity got going. So beyond maybe changing that rule and hiring foreign pilots, are there any other specific things you can think we need to do to solve the shortage? Oh, too many to mention, but let me try because there are so many things we could be doing that we are not doing. We need to reform training. We need to develop funding sources. No, and Everybody agrees on that. And despite what unions will tell you, we cannot spend our way out of the pilot shortage with bonuses or higher pay. That only poaches pilots who are already qualified. We must create more pilots, and taking five years won't cut it. Creating a pilot shortage has seriously backfired because it has stunted the growth of revenues and networks of major airline and increased pressure for automation. We have to diversify recruiting because there are not enough white males to fill the ranks we need. We need to recruit from all minority populations, Black, Latino, women, LGBTQ, the whole lot. And pilots need to stop whining about their careers and start talking about what they love. And if there are things they hate about their jobs, change it. I know, I know, I know that sounds naive, but we must do it anyway. I'm talking about work rules because millennials are not satisfied with the status quo work-life balance in the aviation industry. I know unions make it hard, but they are part of the problem as reflected in their reluctance to change work rules for women pilots. Women have been advocating for changes for decades, not because they want special privileges, but because it is a safety issue because they want a better family life balance, because we still, unfortunately, live in a society where they are the primary caregivers. Well, if society wants to keep it that way, it needs to accommodate that with more than a one-size-fits-all solution. Frankly, in my position, I think we need to change society, not women. Several years ago, ALPA actually polled its members and found male pilots want the same thing female pilots do. But I haven't seen the needle move yet. We already know culture is a huge problem within the pilot ranks, and studies show this is a detrimental impact on safety and CRM. 
And in management, the recent Women in Aviation Advisory Board report was an eye-opener even for those with good diversity records. WIAB cited culture as the overriding issue and is not just the perception of the old boys network, but the reality they find once they join the industry. So, Catherine, I don't want you to hold back anymore, okay? (laughs) (laughs) See, I've been writing on this and thinking about this very deeply for a very long time. I hadn't hadn't picked up on that until you just said that. I'm just teasing you. I know. Uh, So do you think this shortage is going to bring, you know, permanent structural changes or just temporary ones? I mean, you you talk about diversity that needs to be a permanent change, but, you know, let's get granular, the impact on regional airlines, for example, service to small communities. What's your view on that as these things all change? Well, I think service to small communities has already happened. Um, I think even that issue is unclear. I want to know what airport the majority of travelers use, not just that they have an option of a local airport. What is the reality? It may be that passengers have already abandoned small communities because if they drive an hour or a little more, they may get more selections for destinations and fares. The West is a different story, I know. But in the East, if they drive an hour, they can fly nonstop to their destination. And that's what I do. I could fly out of Melbourne, Florida, but that means connecting in Charlotte or Atlanta and higher fares. It will be up to the majors to change that equation, not the regionals. And people will drive an hour or more for the cheaper fares and more destination choices. And perhaps it's for the airlines to provide more choices at local airports, growing them. But I'm not holding my breath. Well, Catherine, do you think consolidation in the regional space might help them deal with this better, or would that just complicate things? Um, No, I don't think it will help them deal with it better because we've already seen massive consolidation in the regional space, largely as the result of majors not renewing contracts, and those regionals have gone out of business for the most part. You had ASA, ExpressJet, TransStates. You have the largest regionals owned by their majors, Piedmont and and PSA, for instance. Then you have large uh, regionals who are independently owned, but who, as one airline president put it years ago, are just seat production factories, not airlines. Then you have the EAS carriers who are subsidized. And my question goes back to what I was saying before, is how much is that subsidization worth it if passengers have already abandoned the hub-and-spoke model for other communications methods and hubs? So we have a very cloudy picture, and it's a picture that I think is, is not a good one for the regional airlines. We'll be right back with Catherine Creedy in a moment, but we want to remind you that this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com slash advantage. So we've been talking on this show about United's efforts to upgauge their regional service with mainline flying and how that's going to have a ripple effect on their regional relationships. What if Delta and American do the same thing? And like you said, you start eliminating service to these marginal airports or feeder airports. What becomes of the regional industry? 
Well, I actually see this as a reality, and the regional industry will shrink more than it already has. We've already lost over 200 points on the regional maps. But I think that the advent of the A220 is a game changer in this respect. I think it offers the economics where mainline pilots could be flying the routes regionals are now flying. For instance, we think of SkyWest Airlines as a regional airline, but it is not. It goes from coast to coast. Its routes are much more the traditional mainline routes than they are uh, regional routes. But I also see on the upside a tremendous opportunity to create actual regional transport by developing intra regional service, connecting communities of interest within regions who must now go over a hub to get within the same region. Hubs are not for passenger convenience. I see California, Texas, Florida, New England are pockets where this could start if you had the right aircraft, small turboprops like the Technem P-2012 or the Cessna Denali or the Cessna Sky Courier. The Caravan is another really, really good platform. But clearly, some, and including United, uh, some see the answer uh, in regional air mobility, but they can't just duplicate the hub and spoke model to make it more effective for the passengers. I see regional air mobility as something of intra-regional transport plus getting people to the hub. Catherine, you mentioned culture in the pilot workforce and a key to getting more women is a culture thing. You've done some analysis as part of the Women in Aviation Advisory Board with a report that concludes that culture is a hurdle, almost a disincentive to diversity. Can you talk about that report and more things that report revealed? Well, the report had... Uh, It was 85 pages, and it had, I think, over 50 recommendations. But behind almost all of its recommendations, it said, frankly, is culture. And I think culture is a real, real problem within the aviation industry, even those that um, have really good diversity records. And when I'm talking about diversity, I'm not talking about women. I'm talking about anybody who is not the traditional white male employee. Because I hear the same things from people of color that I hear from women, that when they, armed with their corporate policy against sexual discrimination and harassment and abuse, they go to HR and they say, I have a problem with XYZ and this is the record and they present the record and only to see their HR department ignore the corporate policy and promote uh, the perpetrator while they're marginalized and are either forced to leave or forced to sue their companies. This is a tremendous waste of time and talent. So I feel that number one on the agenda, even for those companies like Alaska Airlines or JetBlue, who have tremendous, tremendously diverse executive suites, they need to assess what they do when the rubber hits the road, assess what they do when a, an employee comes and said, say they are facing a toxic workplace. So that's, I think, number one on the agenda. But other uh, recommendations from the Women, Women in Aviation Advisory Board which did a 
a wonderful, wonderful job, includes more funding for pilot training, more funding. And I think that we're now at a point in our in our society where we are changing the education from one that grade school, high, middle school, high school, college, to career and technical education all the way through primary and secondary school and getting them into the work, workforce. And then because of the overwhelming cost of college, leveraging wor- uh, workforce uh, benefits in order to go to college. So that helps the workforce because they aren't saddled with so much debt, but it also helps funnel people earlier into the flight deck or the aircraft maintenance bay or whatever other career they want in the aviation industry. I look at some of the careers and post them out on social media. Interested in art? There's a place for you in aviation. Thinking of uh, all the art that goes into the Delta Sky Clubs and interested in animals? There's a place for you in aviation. Thinking of FedEx and UPS both have divisions that handle animal transport. So no matter what people have in, you know, as their love uh, that they want to pursue, there's a place for them in aviation. Hey, Catherine, can you give props to any airlines that you think are doing a great job in diversity and, and inclusion? Well, yeah, um, I think JetBlue on both diversity and pilot development, hands down. They have the oldest pilot gateway program in the industry, which has been expanded into seven or eight different pathways. So kudos to JetBlue. Alaska is very good, but it and United and Delta, they just are beginning their pilot pathway journey. It was only a few years ago that the first airline academy was developed at American and and airlines in Europe have had airline academies for decades. So we're very much behind the pie, uh, power curve on that. But that's a good start. And the airlines are putting their money where their mouths are because bonuses being offered today help pay for pilot training. Uh, $150,000 to $250,000. That's a college education with flight training. Alaska has been focused on diversity for many years. And if you look at my list of women executives in aviation and aerospace, the main lines have a lot of women executives. Uh, It's impressive, but that doesn't mean we still don't have to transform culture. Well, Catherine, what are the other issues pilots are facing now? We've been hearing a lot about pilot fatigue. What are they really fatigued about? Well, I think they're uh, flying much more than than they are used to flying because of the pilot shortage, and they're being used for other duties uh, besides flying. For instance, the Air- American Air- Allied Pilots Association is suing the company over training issues because of the lack of instructors and poaching pilots for that task. Alaska has not had a contract in, I think, three years. How much of this is union posturing leveraging newfound power or reality, I don't know. But it is very worrying because it all goes back to the airlines having their head in the sand on so many pilot-related issues, including the shortage, work rules, training, recruiting. The airlines have just been absent without leave on all of these issues. And I think for the airlines, no matter who they are, whether it's United or, or Alaska, 
it is a real indictment that many of these diversity programs did not happen until 2021, when Alaska and United, for instance, began touting their wanting to work with historically Black colleges and universities. We've had a looming pilot shortage every decade for what, I think, 30 years, but we've always dodged the bullet uh, because of recessions and 9-11. For that reason, I put it down to poor management. Well, Catherine, before we let you go, I've got to ask you one more question. United made some news this week, putting out what they're calling the United Next Plan, which seems to me to be a sort of big framing of the fact that they're taking delivery of 500 airplanes over the next five years, basically an average of two a week for the next five years. In their discussion of this plan, they specifically say one of the challenges will be finding the pilots to fly all these planes. Do you think they have a chance at that kind of growth rate? No, no, I don't. I think that's um, not unless we change uh, pilot training. Not unless we change immigration. There are so many things that corporations could do to advance pilots in the United States. How many pilots do we train in the United States? They get their 200 to 500 hours. They can't fly here, but they go home to Emirates and they are in the right seat of of the flight deck. We're wasting talent, time, and money and corporations need to to step up to the challenge. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce cited immigration as the number one challenges for businesses in, in America. That's a really conservative organization. So if they're doing that, why isn't aviation joining them and really getting uh, with Congress to solve the immigration problem and solve the pilot shortage? We don't so- need the 1,500-hour rule. We have different ways to train. We have to look at other regions in the world in order to take those lessons and bring them here. This has been fantastic, Catherine. Thank you so much for your insight, your passion, and what you're doing for the industry. You've brought up some really important issues in a way that sort of encourages people to say, how can we act better? Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful opportunity, and uh, I'll be interested in the feedback because, as I said, I learn from those who don't agree with me. And uh, um, sometimes, you know, they're they're not right, but oftentimes they are. And I expand my thinking. And we need everybody to get weigh in on this and come up with innovative and creative solutions because it's not working now. Well, I've got no doubt there'll be feedback, Catherine. So uh, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your, your expertise. It really was an amazing conversation. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. And such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks again. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Catherine Creedy for joining us. Now it's time for listener questions. Please email us your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. 
We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. Ben, we have a few comments from listeners I want to share regarding last week's show. First, we talked last week about the old Northwest Pan Am and TWA rights they held in foreign markets. Adam Thompson from Arlington, Texas, wrote in with some additional color. He says, guys, Northwest Airlines had the right to fly domestic as well as international services from Narita. Northwest based 757s on the field up till it merged with Delta for both the international and domestic services. Kansai and Chubu airports in Japan were both on the schedule out of Narita for a while. So, Adam, thanks for that point. And then Jesse from Prince Edward Island, Canada, also wrote in saying, Hello, Chris and Ben. I'm just reaching out because you were talking on the last podcast about Canada Jetlines, our new ultra-low-cost carrier. Canada also has another startup low-cost carrier called Linksair that just got started last week. I want to reach out to you because I don't remember hearing anything on any recent podcast about that airline, but also, are all of these new airlines a good thing for Canada? I just want to know your thoughts about Canada's aviation future. Well, thanks very much, Jesse, and thanks, Adam, for that clarification. You're right. There's a lot of activity going on in Canada. I, we didn't talk about links. We didn't talk about Flare Air and maybe some of the challenges they might be having about whether or not they really are a Canadian airline in their ownership. You also have Bill Frankie, who's well known around the world for his investments in Spirit, Frontier, JetSmart down in Canada, Wiz in Europe starting an airline there or buying into an airline and helping convert it to another ULCC. So you're right. There's a lot of activity going on in Canada. The question is whether any of these smaller companies are going to be able to compete with the two big players in Air Canada and WestJet. Now, WestJet was privatized and they're going through some changes. Air Canada was going to buy another airline, Air Transat, but that didn't go through. So there's just a lot of activity in a country with fewer than 40 million people. I mean, fewer people live in Canada than live in California, I think. And most of them live close to the U.S. border. That's not diminishing Canada at all. It's a great country and a great partner to the U.S. But if you talk about having as many airlines as in the U.S. or continental Europe, it's just going to be tough. Also, there's not that many huge cities in Canada, and they're far apart. You've got Toronto and Montreal in the east. Maybe you can throw Ottawa in there. Then you've got Calgary and Edmonton that are quite far west and Vancouver on the coast. Not that much in the middle in terms of really big cities. So I'm skeptical as to how vibrant an ultra low cost sector Canada can have. That said, just like the rest of the world, Canadians like low fares. So a well-structured low cost carrier, whether that ends up being Jetlines or Lynx or Flair or Bill Frankie's new airline, you know, some amount of that capacity is certainly going to play in Canada. And I think that's going to be a space to watch over the coming years for sure. Yeah, I think that's an excellent assessment. I mean, everybody likes low fares. There's room for 
successful low fare carriers, but is there room for all of them? I don't know, but that means they're not all going to be successful either. So, but there's clearly a growth opportunity uh, for the right mix of management, aircraft, and marketing strategies. Well, thanks, Chris. I'm going to ask you as the PR guy to take the lead on this next question. We don't have the luxury of having Ed Bastian's comments on this week's earnings call ahead of our taping, but Kyle from Minneapolis wants our take on something else Ed recently said on CNBC's Squawk Box. Kyle writes, Ed Bastian made comments basically saying that the money Delta got wasn't a bailout. Your thoughts? My opinion is that just because there were conditions doesn't mean it's not a bailout. The government gave you money to help you stay in business by keeping people employed. Disappointed in the major carrier at my local Minneapolis airport. Chris, was this a bailout or not that Delta got? (laughs) I think Ed Bastin is brilliant. I think he's a very smart guy. He's led the industry in so many ways, but I part ways with him on this one. I don't think it was useful to go out of your way and say it wasn't a bailout, which is what he did. I've looked at the transcript and watched the video from the CNBC appearance. Um, And the, the reason was there was a specific goal and, and Ed even said it in the interview, which was the money, I'm not going to call it the bailout, the money from the federal government to the airline industry was designed to keep people on the payroll while the pandemic passed. But then literally all the major carriers conducted buyouts and got people off the payroll. So when they came back to full strength and when travel bounced back, then you had the situation last summer where there were staff shortages. And that's what the subject of a lot of congressional hearings and noise was about as well. So I I don't think you need to get into a debate about words and categorizations. I mean, the industry got a very generous financial resource package. Whether you call it a bailout or not, I guess that's semantics, but they got the same kind of support after 9-11 that other industries didn't get. And the same thing happened here where the airline industry was specifically called out for additional support where other sectors had to apply for loans and the like. So, you know, I, I don't think this was all that useful, but, you know, I guess they're trying to convince somebody that it wasn't a bailout, if maybe to convince themselves. I'm not sure, but I, I, I personally wouldn't have gone there. That's a great answer, Chris, and that's why you're good at your job, because I don't think if you were the head of PR at Delta, you would have wanted Ed Bastian to say that. <laughs> I, I think you're exactly right. You know, if it looks and talks and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And the airline industry got a lot of money. To say it didn't get a bailout almost suggests, now I watched this segment and Ed Bastian did not say this, but the implication was like, we didn't get anything special or we weren't treated specially. And everybody just knows that's not the case. Like the better answer would be to say, we appreciate that taxpayers and the government kept this industry going at a time we needed it. Now the way we're giving back is blah, blah, blah. You know, something like that. Yeah, I just, 
I had this image of that old Snickers commercial where somebody runs across and tackles Betty White. I was like, you know, stop, you know, don't stop saying this. <laughs> so um, anyway, look, you know, I, I'm sure there's a story behind the story. We're not privy to it. Ed Bastian doesn't really care what I think. Maybe he doesn't care what you think either. So they're going to say what they're going to say, but I, I would I've never recommended it. Let's leave it at that. Well, that's another busy week in aviation. As we wrap up, I want to give my shout out. And as a native Californian, I can make fun of California and Californians. It looks like San Francisco airport officials have decided the pandemic is over and life can be normal again because they've reopened the use of private yoga rooms with self-guided videos and regularly disinfected mats at SFO. So Ben, I know how much you love yoga, so you better get out there and do your thing. (laughs) That's a fantastic shout out, Chris. That's really funny. Well, my shout out goes to Atlanta Airport for once again being the world's number one airport in terms of passengers. I think that's great in that the hubbing airport at Atlanta Delta was not one of the carriers that was particularly aggressive during the pandemic about keeping capacity high. So the fact that Atlanta has now displaced what was Dubai or Dallas or others, and is back where it has been much of its life as the number one airport is great. And especially what that says about U.S. traffic, traffic to fun places like Florida, which Atlanta carries a lot of, and things like that. So go Atlanta. Well, thanks again for listening this week. We'll see you back here next week. And thanks again to Catherine Creedy. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.